0: dad's last gasp, if you're looking at Job 25 on a page, almost nobody is yet, that's okay, what's the first thing you notice about it? <laughs> it's really, really short, so this is the third cycle of speeches, and we heard Eliphaz last time. Bildad's you can see, is this short. And Zophar is not even going to have anything to say. He won't even have a speech. And this is the end of the rounds of speeches. This is the last we will hear from any of Job's comforters. And what a delightful job they did. I mean, what, what an honor to have been in the presence of such wisdom. Lo, these many weeks. It is short. It's just a repetition from Bill Dad of what's already been said. And to that, we have to give him some credit because a lot of times when somebody's not getting what we're saying, or Job gets it, he's just not agreeing, we think that more words is the answer. Well, maybe if I just explained it longer and louder this time, they would come to agree with me. And Bill Dad, to his credit, recognizes that that's not true. He, very short and sweet, three-point sermon, uh, making his main argument that he's made before, and then he signs off. He's done. Uh, Christopher Ashe has a, a great way of describing the ends of the friend's speeches here. He says, they stutter into silence, beaten by Job's perseverance, integrity, and faith. N- normally, we think of it as a bad thing when somebody would give up on us and and just say, they're a lost cause. They're beyond hope. They're never going to see this or understand. And if what the person is telling us is, is true and right, then that would be tragic because we would pray that we would get understanding. But when what the people are saying is uh, misapplied nonsense, it's actually great that his friends give up on him and just spurt this last round of, of criticism and critique And then go away. They were beaten back by his perseverance, integrity, and faith, Ash says. So chapter 25, let's just quickly his three-point sermon here. Uh, Noah, would you read chapter 25, 1 through 6?
1: And then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he, who is born of woman, be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man, who is a maggot, and the son of a man, who is a worm.
0: So Bildad makes kind of the the typical argument sandwich here, right? Uh, You can toss away verse 1, because that just tells us who's speaking. So verses 2 and 3, that's what a 3 looks like, y'all. Verses 2 and 3, he praises God for his sovereignty. That's going to be an important aspect of Bildad's argument. It has been throughout. And so he praises God for his sovereignty. Verse 4 is going to be his thesis. His thesis is, once again, in defense of the system. Verse 4 is humans cannot be justified before God. That's his primary argument. And then 5 and 6 are um, praise of God's purity. So his argument is sort of sandwiched. The bread is who God is. Therefore, his thesis in the middle, humans cannot be justified before God. And this really points to the, the bankruptcy of the system. The fact that they just have to keep going back to this. The fact that they have never once interacted with Job's request that what he needs is a mediator. That what Job needs is to stand, that Job will be vindicated not by his behavior, but by his faith and trust in God. And his friends haven't interacted with that at all. They just keep going back to, no, no, God is completely sovereign and in control. God is completely pure and holy. Therefore, you cannot possibly stand before God. And that's right as far as it goes. The problem is it doesn't go nearly far enough. It doesn't go as far as scripture goes. It doesn't go as far as Job goes. And they're not engaging with that. Bildad talks about the fear of God, this reverence that we should have for his sovereignty. And that is, that is true. And that is critical because when we get to God sort of putting Job in his place speeches at the end, w- w- what is God going to lean on in those speeches? What, what is God going to say to Job? Where were you when I? And it's not just, this is, a, this is a both and, and I'll talk about it more when we get there, but I was thinking about this this morning. How much of this ties back to Genesis 1:1? I think if I were inclined to, to write a new teaching right now, I think I could teach for an entire semester on Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God, and you could just stop right there. And, and what God is saying when He says, "Where were you when I?" is not just I made those things and you don't understand how I made them because you can't do it. That is part of what God is saying to Job. But but what's implicit in that is the, when it's the, where were you? Where were you in the beginning, Job? Because I was already there. Why? Because I am the creator and you are the creature. I am eternal and you are finite. It's not just what I've done that God is going to lean on in that discussion. It's who he is. Where were you when I was already there? Oh, you hadn't been created yet. (laughs) Not just you don't understand how to create and do these other things that I did. You weren't even there because I had to make you first. And would the thing that has been made say back to the one who made it? I don't like this. That's where this argument is going to go. So sovereignty is going to be really important in this. And Bildad is right to to call out reverence for that sovereignty. He describes dominion and fear. He makes peace in the high heaven, any number to his armies. All of it is under his control. His rule is all-encompassing. There is not one maverick molecule. I mean, think about that for a minute. There's not one thing at the atomic level that moves apart from God's will of decree. Water, when it boils and the atoms are bumping up against each other, can only do so because of the decree of God. And so in a world where that is true, It is difficult to imagine that a creature could stand before God and be justified, especially given the second argument that God is holy and that we are not. And so the wiser thing to do, Bildad says, is to bow in reverence rather than to seek to be justified before him. He thinks that Job is nuts. He thinks that Job is out of line, that he's sinful to desire to stand before God seeking justice. And this is, like every other one of the friend's speeches, true insofar as it goes and unhelpful because it doesn't go far enough and therefore it doesn't apply to Job. Total depravity, this last section, God's purity compared with, what does he call us? A maggot and the son of man who is a worm? That's that's a reasonable comparison. Neil, when he was here, uh, described uh, God trying to teach us his ways, like you trying to teach your dog algebra. Where, where would you even start? Right, right. So maggot, worm, okay, we get that, especially when you bring sin into it, uh, compared to God's uh, holiness. This is certainly true. We, we are not pure. But there are two ways. So what, what is total depravity? Just let's have a quick doctrine check for a minute. What is total depravity? We're a mess.
1: Literally dead. Like nothing we can do.
0: Yeah, what's the... the? Go ahead, Pam.
2: Totally broken from God.
0: In every way, in as much as it could be, there's two sides of the total coin. If you just think about the total part for a minute. In every way, there is no part of your being. Whatever you are, body, soul, spirit, mind... There is no part of you that is not depraved. So well, that's in um, contrast to like the Gnostics who would say, no, no, your body is a problem, but the spirit is good and you've just got to separate from the body. No, Christianity says totally depraved, all of it, head to toe, all of it, inside and out. But total also means completely not, you're a little bit sick and getting sicker. You're dead and getting deader. No, just dead. Right? You are just dead, totally depraved. But there's a couple things we get wrong, or two different ways that we can get total depravity wrong. Bildad's afraid that Job gets it wrong by not thinking that it's depraved enough or total enough. That's why he uses maggot and worm. He, he, he wants to make sure that Job has no illusions that Job is you know, good at heart and getting better or not perfect, but good enough. And in the world in which we live, this is what most people believe. Most people believe nobody's perfect, but I'm pretty close. And the people who have self-awareness believe nobody's perfect, nobody even's close, but I'm better than most people. Do you know what percentage of people believe they're more moral than the average person? All of them. 100% of people believe that they're on the upper end of the bell curve of morality. So Bildad is afraid that Job is making that error about depravity, that he doesn't get how depraved it is. What Bildad then gets wrong is the other side of depravity. And this happens in religious circles. This happens not with these terms, but it happens in effect in hyper-reformed kind of churches, in hyper-legalistic Baptist kind of households, and in... um, roman catholic sincere thoughtful kind of households (laughs) because if what roman catholic doctrine teaches is true you should be a really unhappy person most of the time and if what legalistic parents teach their children is true those children should feel a crushing weight and a heavy load on their shoulders most of the time and if hyper reformed people are right None of it matters, and there's nothing you can do about it anyway, but if you decide to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, you'll feel guilty about it. (laughs) It's it's all bad. So the other side of this that's an error, the other way we approach total depravity and error is the way that Bildad approaches it, which is to uh, not believe that there is redemption available for the depraved. And Job has hinted at this a couple times because Job doesn't fully understand how it will happen. But what Job recognizes that Bildad doesn't, Bildad says, okay, God's sovereign and God is holy, therefore man cannot be justified in front of him. And Job would say, well, let me tweak that a little bit. God is sovereign and God is holy, therefore no man can justify himself before God. But that's not what Job's asking. Job's asking God to justify him. And that's why he hints at this need for a a redeemer, a kind of kinsman redeemer, uh, that's who I will stand with in the last day and be justified because my faith is in God. The, the, there's no logical reason to believe, given God's sovereignty and purity, that anyone could stand before him and be justified. The only logical reason that any of us could believe that is that God said he will do it. And in Job's case, that it is utterly consistent with the nature of God. As they describe who God is in all of these ways, Job says that God will justify those who trust him. And then sort of unpacking this throughout the patriarchs, the Old Testament, the prophets, and obviously through Christ in the New Testament, that, yep, that is exactly true. That is what God said back in Genesis 3.15. That is what, uh, that is what God said with the covenant with Abraham, it's what he said at Sinai. Sinai, Sinai is a law covenant. Sinai is where God gave people. How does the law begin? Does the law begin if you will keep these ten things, then I will free you from bondage and slavery in Egypt? How does the law begin? I took you out. I already took you out. I already made you free. This is what it looks like to walk with me in faith. So this is the other way we can approach total depravity and get it wrong. And uh, I think it's Derek Thomas's commentary, but it might be Ashes. One of them, I think it's Derek Thomas, one of them references Lord of the Flies. Y'all remember that book? Anybody read that book? (laughs) <laughs> we were talking about classic literature Friday night because, yes. what you know, when it's ladies' night out and y'all are engaged in whatever <laughs> frivolity you're involved in, we were discussing the great literature, the classics. That's
1: true. That was almost discussing,
0: very close on the number. <laughs> discussing the movie version, <laughs> yeah. it's almost remembering authors and things like that. So the um, Golding, who wrote *Lord of the Flies*, his analysis of human nature of total depravity is right. (laughs) That is exactly what will happen. And any of us who could imagine putting our children abandoned on an island to fend for themselves for perpetuity knows exactly how that's going to end up, right? We don't need to be taught to be evil. What Golding gets absolutely wrong is the same thing Bildad gets wrong. Bildad has absolutely no category for redemption, and therefore Bildad's view of God, Bildad's religion, offers no hope. If, uh, let me read from Derek Thomas for a minute. Bildad's argument is that we are maggots and we are worms, right? We're no different than the maggots and the worms. He says, but man is not just an animal. Man was made in the image of God. And his depravity is the result of having fallen from this high position. But if man was created in God's image, it is possible that by some divine power, this image may be restored. And that's why the, the message of total depravity is a really important lesson from Scripture. It's the lesson that changed my life, where I went from being a churched kid to finally understanding the gospel for myself, was Genesis 3. What does it mean to be fallen? Oh, it means total. It means dead. It means without hope. Except. And that is really, really critical because some people, I grew up in the Pentecostal charismatic, like you have to pretend everything's upbeat kind of church movement. Some people grew up under harsh legalism, under harsh or Catholicism or or, uh, things that are more aware of total depravity. But the Bible never presents total depravity in a vacuum. I just said total depravity comes from Genesis 3. But where did I say a few minutes ago the first gospel promise comes from? Genesis 3. (laughs) It never separates the two. You do not talk about depravity in biblical terms without talking about redemption and the opportunity for redemption. That is really, really critical. So Job will have an answer to this because Bildad says, because God is these two things, he cannot have anything to do with man. And and Job will say, Job will say a lot of inconsistent things, which I'll get to in a minute. But in his best moments, Job will think, Well, God is that sovereign and that holy and created us in his image. Of course, he would be able to restore us to the position from which we've fallen. I can't do that, but God could do that. And so he'll have an answer that Bildad doesn't have. And so that is the end of the story for Bildad and for all of the comforters. Any questions about That. Are
1: Christians totally depraved?
0: Hmm. We were, and we live with the total one side of the coin every fiber of our being is still impacted by depravity. We do not live with the other side of the coin that we are completely and utterly dead, impacted by depravity. So I said two types of totality. One of them remains. You will get old and sick and die. Your body will break down. That's the curse. You will reason wrongly. I can give you all the right facts. And in some circumstances, you will draw all the wrong conclusions. That's the fall. You will doubt the one thing that should never be doubted. The love of God for you in Christ. That's the fall. So every aspect of your being is still impacted by your original depravity. But the spirit of Christ puts to death, mortifies, reduces until eventually it is nothing, the other type of total. Does that make sense? That's what we're supposed to be doing in this Christian life, you guys. When you get... Frustrated that you're not holier, that you still doubt God about what God is doing in your life. You, you, you're supposed to think of it like a, a vat. Oh gracious, I'm gonna draw something. I don't even know what direction to go there. And this is filled with evil. It is not a top hat. <laughs> I don't like this game.
1: <laughs>
0: Sounds like I, I hate you all. <laughs> the plug is on the wrong side. Oh,
1: God. Andrew, drop one. I was going to say, it's I'm be happy about this. We
0: <laughs> need someone else to ridicule. All right. God comes and takes your vat of evil. This is a vat of evil. This is your total depravity, completely filled up. <laughs> It's a top hat of evil. <laughs> and it is turned upside down and it is filled up with evil. <laughs> and he comes and he punches a hole in it. And he starts to empty it out. And he doesn't leave it empty, he backfills it with righteousness. And that is your whole life. Your whole life. And when you hear me say things, because I use shorthand a lot in the service. When I say things like he's making you ready for the day of Christ's coming. What does that mean? When I say he's making you more and more like Christ. What does that mean? It means this. It means the total fullness of your depravity. Little by little at his pace, not yours. He is draining from the top hat of evil and he is backfilling it with Christ's righteousness. Because... On the day of judgment, he has already declared you righteous. How could he do that? Because on the day of righteousness, you will be completely filled with all the fullness of Christ. Not just God commits some, as one scholar calls it, legal fiction, where God just plays pretend and calls you righteous even though you're not. No, that's not what Christianity says at all. That's not justification. Justification is this top hat of evil drained over the course of your life at God's speed with all the evil you brought to the table backfilled with the righteousness of Christ so that in the moment in time and space of your judgment what God declared to be true in eternity is in fact proved to be true that you are completely righteous it's your righteousness it's in your top hat it's Christ's works not yours so
2: it's at God's pace, but aren't we still responsible for getting rid of our own sin?
0: you gotta, you got you to gotta act in accord with the righteousness and stop acting in accord with the evil that remains. In a, in a given moment, what belongs to you is the choice. What I'm going to do in this moment, will I do that on account of the remaining evil within me or will I instead act within the righteousness of Christ? That's why in the, the uh, dead language, Latin, the, the, they describe you before the fall as not able not to sin. Why? Because the only thing in that bucket from which you act is evil. That's all that's there crypto finance guy can give money to charity. But you know what that is? Evil. There may be common grace good that God brings out of it. Hey, at least charity got some money that got stolen from everybody else. But what he did, evil. Why? It's all he's got. All he can act out of is evil. He is not able not to sin. And there will be a day when all of this is gone and we stand righteous before Christ and we inherit in the new heavens and the new earth. And what will be our condition then? Not able to sin. Why? Because we're going to be puppets and we don't do anything freely? No, because everything we do freely is done out of a bucket that only has righteousness from Christ in it. Every fiber of our being, every want we have, every ability we will have will spring forth, that's the wellspring concept, from this righteousness of Christ that's filled us up. But now, from the moment you put your trust in Christ, and he regenerates you, until the moment you die, you're able to sin. I trust none of us disagree with that, right? And you're able not to sin. How? Which will drive you? Every single situation, when you make a choice about what you're going to say and what you're going to do, which of these will be the source of that action? If it is the righteousness of Christ, it will please God. If it is the wickedness of indwelling sin, it will be sin. No matter what you do. That's why Paul says things like eating meat sacrificed to idols. If you do it out of this, good stuff. Medium rare, please. If you do it out of this, oh, that's sin for you. Violating your conscience against God, oh, that's bad. You don't want to be there. This is why Daphne and I were talking about this uh, some point this weekend, Pray yesterday. Sometimes in church services we can get confused or we can feel beat up because the emphasis on total depravity is... Directed improperly at the believer. Example, uh, call to worship. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. All right, which one of you is that? All. All of you. If you do it out of this, it's every one of you. And that's the point of that call to worship. The point of a call to worship is not, why are any of you here? Why don't you, <laughs> why don't you just go? <laughs> The point, and this will be very relevant for this morning's sermon. The point is, what you're about to do for the next hour plus, do it out of this, and it will please God. And he will use that to make you more like Christ. But, as we'll see from Isaiah here in just a minute, if you do that, worship, out of this, he may kill you. He may kill your body, or as he says to Isaiah, he says to the Corinthians, or as he says to Isaiah, he may blind you so that you can never see him again. That's what he did to summon Judah. Going through the motions, not honoring God as God. No. If you're afraid of that, you're not in danger of that. <laughs> okay? If you're afraid that your half-hearted Sunday worship, quarter-hearted, eighth-hearted, on a given Sunday, is going to bring the judgment of God upon you, you're gonna be okay. <laughs> if you're not afraid of that, let's talk.
2: So, would this be accurate to say that the tools that God has given us there, living in community, sacraments, etc cetera, are, are ways to poke holes in there mm-hmm. to make more capacity for God to fill it with His grace, so it's not works. I'm not saying it's works. It's just you're giving more opportunity.
0: Yeah, I think I um, I, I hear what you're saying. I wouldn't. I'm not quibbling with the words. I'm exploring the breadth of it. I think the way I would say it is not that it increases the capacity. It it motivates, enables facilitates us to draw from this righteousness rather than that sin. The people around us may be a tool through which God prompts us to act out of righteousness rather than sin. Everything in the bucket that is righteous belongs to him. And I hear what you're saying, that if the bucket's bigger, he can put more in. But I, I think of it more as, what does God have to do to get me to draw from the righteousness in the bucket rather than the sin. And he uses all of those other things. He uses worship. He uses the means of grace. He uses other believers in our lives. He uses random interferences in our circumstances where you just say, you know, where God gives you something that, humanly speaking, is trivial. And you know it came from him. The moment where you say, God, I I got nothing left. And the person in the closest parking space to the mall pulls out. (laughs) Uh, And there's plenty of times God doesn't do that. And he's teaching us something there, too. But I I think God.
2: But the people that say to us, I don't need church. It's me and God. I can do that without church. And I'm thinking you're missing all the tools that help you get there.
0: Why would you want to make it harder for yourself? I could probably figure out how to operate a sailboat. But why would I not read instructions, take a class, watch a YouTube video, find an instructor, right? Why would you put yourself in a position where you make it as hard as possible? Um, That's the argument I would make to someone who makes that. The argument I would not make in that moment, which is also true, is, yeah, that's not what God says. Bad news for you. God flat out says the opposite. And you're actually doing grave danger to your soul. But to try and be winsome and inviting, I would ask them, why would you want to do that? Because if somebody says that, they're either coming from a place of unbelief, in which case you're dealing with an unbeliever, so lower your expectations. Or they're coming from a place of deep hurt with the church, in which case they're coming from a place of pain. So... Be gracious with a person who's in pain. Or from place of not wanting to be accountable. That ultimately ends up in the unbeliever part to me. Yeah. Um, when we don't want to be accountable to humans, all of us feel that way in general. But press on that instinct. And when we won't be accountable to humans, it's because we won't be accountable to God. I've, I've never met anyone who stays long-term in the, I don't need the church, who doesn't end up becoming outwardly, irreple- uh, irre- completely, demonstrably arrogant. Irreparably. Irreparably. Arrogant. I don't think that's the word I was looking for, but... I don't know what word I was looking for, which is why I paused. It, it will be, it is, it is me and thee, and they're not so sure about thee. And then it's them by themselves. And they say it's them and their principles, which we, is a joke we make a lot. But it really just ends up being them. Because their principle is what they want. And they will they become bullies. If you've met people like this, they inevitably become bullies. Because they cannot back you down on scripture, they cannot back you down on the facts, so they just have to back you down. And again, you know, I have a small sample size, probably half a dozen people in my life, who were absolutely committed to this principle that I don't need the church. And all of them are arrogant bullies.
1: You described that process a few moments ago, and it may have just been switching terms, but you described it as justification, and I would have described it as sanctification. Yeah, sorry. And so I just want to be, yep. for anybody who may be confused by that, I, I wanted
0: to see what so was wrong. So justification is God's declaration. Now This is going to be tough. You got to pull God out of your humanoid time-space continuum for a moment, okay? God is eternal. So justification is God's declaration that you... On the day of judgment before Christ, we'll have a bucket that is completely full of the righteousness of Christ. So in our human minds, now if we go sort of back into the space-time continuum, we would imprecisely say that justification is God declaring what he will do. He will do this process whereby he drains out your sinfulness and fills you with the righteousness of Christ, and he will do it over the course of the human life. Justification is not only true on that timescale, though. Justification is eternally true because God is eternal and made the declaration from all eternity. So there's some imprecision there in the way we talk about it, but there's a much closer relationship between justification and sanctification uh, than some reformed articulations suggest. Some of the ways you hear the gospel described really divorce these two things. And what they're trying to protect you from is works righteousness. They're trying to protect you from the idea that if you do good enough, God will save you. And that's anathema. That's evil. That is not the gospel. But where they go too far (laughs) is by suggesting that because justification is a one-time declaration by God, you can completely abstract it out from sanctification. And the Bible says, no, justification, sanctification, glorification... are from God's eternal perspective, one event. They're equally certain by the same declaration. This is what God says is. This is how he will do it. And this is what he will do. Now, again, you got to be super careful. Because when you emphasize that side, like I just did, there's going to be a whole lot of people that come along and say, well, then you're saying that it's... No, I'm really not. I'm really not. And if you, if you make me abandon one of these, justification's the one I'm hanging my hat on, right? God's declaration is what does it all.
1: Isn't that how it's... I mean, when we talk about pulling ourselves out of time and history and what God decreed... like the. That's a, we live in in history and how we experience those truths. Like, we're not going to experience, we we haven't experienced, like, glorification may be true about us at a future date because because we are justified, because that is a, but we're not experiencing that now, and so if on a moment you're saved, right, we experience, like, you can say at that moment you were justified. And then what we experience after that is sanctification. Are you saying we are experiencing justification, sanctification, glorification all throughout the process because it is true in eternity past?
0: I would say justification is the certain proof, sanctification is the process that delivers us to glory. And that glorification is the light we see in our lives out ahead of us toward which we're striving. So it's hard for me to say, do we experience glorification? It depends on what you mean. Like, I'm not actually glorified now. But seeing the glory of Christ is the race set before me. So this is a central object of my life. It's why I'm doing this all because of this. Can't do this without this. But this is, this is why James is able to say so comfortably, and Reformed people don't like it, but you say I have faith, and I say what? Show me your works. Because if this isn't visibly present, I got a lot of questions about that. Only, only God knows this doesn't save you.
1: But that's tied to, it's tied to the Spirit as well. I mean, all of this is tied to the Spirit of God.
0: Thanks that's what I was thinking about from awesome. Genesis 1 today. What does it mean that we have the Spirit of Christ? What does it mean that Christ is in us? Yeah, it's a lesson for another day. Well,
2: isn't it, isn't it like justification is, you, he's saying you have union with God again. You were separated by sin, you now have union with God through Christ. And then sanctification is you keep going back into the sinful level and you keep confessing and getting forgiveness. And there's that cycle of being reunified, 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 and then glorification is just the ultimate... I
0: think, I think the challenge with that language is that it suggests that when I fail in my sanctification, I've somehow broken the original justification. That's why I, I try hard to speak of justification outside of time. <laughs> Because it is God's eternal declaration of what is true about you, in His looking across all time reality, and in our living in time reality, because we know He said that about us, we have the capacity. We're now in the able to send or not to send bucket. We go through this process. All the tools, things He gives us, means of grace whereby we do choose righteousness more and evil less over time. But it's not not, uh, the day you arrive where 99.9% of the things you do are righteous. That's when God says you're ready for Christ, and he takes you there, and he makes up the 0.1%. You can do a lot of heresies when you're dealing with this stuff, but it, it is that God's eternal declaration about us gives us a destination and puts us on the path and equips us to reach that destination. It cannot fail. And the reason it cannot fail is because of this. God's not going to be wrong in what he declared in eternity. And, and this is how you get to where you're going. Jake, do you have a... Am
1: I wrong in thinking? Probably. Because uh, <laughs> yes. I, uh, I would say that we do experience... As we are experiencing more and more sanctification, we are also experiencing in a smaller taste glorification. In the in, like when I talk about the inbreaking of the world that is
0: that that's all. what I was trying to put my hand on. When somebody says uh, one of my college professors, when I was trying to figure out uh, where to go to seminary, and he was suggesting that I try to go to RTS so that I could work with Doug Kelly, and he's explaining Doug Kelly to me, and then I realize in this conversation that like he's not. He's not really talking to me anymore. He's looking past me. He's he's in another place in his mind. And he says, when Doug preaches, I see Christ. He doesn't mean Doug is Christ. He doesn't mean, right? But but he's explaining that breaking in that is far too rare for us. (laughs) Preaching and worship is the most natural place for it to happen. But it can certainly happen in other areas of life, where in an inexplicable way, the heavenly realm breaks into your reality. And and, and for a moment, and in part, it seems as though there is no divide between the two, that you are with God. That, frighteningly rare, is an experience of this but it's but this is a finished state so, right so,
1: so so my my, my, my dribble, I guess with it, with that is I see what you were saying and that is the glory of Christ like that's not like oh
0: but that is our glory
1: it, it, it's our glory but we're it, it seems odd to say the glory of like then yes then glorification is true now because
0: Christ is all glorious right now. Yeah, but no, but it's this bucket question. Um, when you in our state of glorification when we're not able to sin our entire bucket of righteousness is full. There is no evil in it. We will go through eternal lives, everlasting lives in glory. With full buckets of righteousness, everything we do, pleasing God and honoring God, and being our greatest desire and our joy and our delight. And all the righteousness in that bucket was Christ's obedience, not ours. That's how the bucket got full in the first place. It's not like we need Christ's righteousness in our bucket to get saved, and then when we get when we get to glory, he dumps that out and fills it with our own righteousness. Nope, not at all. We will have forever the righteousness of Christ as our most motivating power. And so in this life, I think what Jake and I are saying is there can be moments where you are so completely, asterisk, probably a dangerous word, so completely engrossed in the glory of Christ, not in the abstract, but that is within you that you're tasting something of the world to come. And yeah, that's, like pretty mystical sounding. I'm not saying it happens all the time. I'm not saying I can fully explain it. it but- Words.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: what did Madonna say? Words are awful and sentences are worse. Come on. <laughs> um, and and it's, it's right for us to, 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 to wrestle with the language around these things. Because it's not They are are weighty, complex things. And if you go a step too far, you plunge headlong into heresy. (laughs) You really do. You plunge into works righteousness really quickly. We all see that. It's the the constant danger of a church like ours where we are very focused on, therefore, hey, you guys, Christ has done this for you, 100% Christ, therefore, Here's what you get out of life. You get joy. You get peace. You can set the world's anxiety aside. You can encourage. You can be generous. You can do all of these things because of what Christ did. But the danger of a church that emphasizes that is that after a few weeks, after a few months, after a few years, you start to forget the first half of that sentence. Because Christ did this, we have to be really careful that we not let you, that we not let us forget the first half of that sentence. I think too many churches are session things. That's the reason we planted this church. Too many churches swing the pendulum too far the other way, which is the only thing they ever tell you is what Christ has done for you. And it seems strange that after a long time of hearing only that, your emotional response would be, so what? How in the world could I? Don't you? Re- I I get it. But Christ gave us the so what, the abundant life, life in him. Not by our own strength, by his. Uh, but the so what matters a lot. <laughs> but when you say that people start to get so what, you mean in that they look at their circumstances? And, if and the God, only thing, happens. if the only, no, I mean, if the only thing Christ offers us is salvation and eternity. Why am I going to church every week?
1: The Titus verse we memorized: "We will be zealous." He's creating people who are zealous for good works. Yep. And that disappears.
0: This us acting out of righteousness rather than sin doesn't just have a profound effect on us, though it does, as it gives us a fuller experience of Christ. That has a transformative effect on the world. That's our church's primary means of evangelism. You guys go be zealous for good works, build relationships, love people. Be generous. Be compassionate. Be better comforters than these bozos that we're studying. And then when people say, how in the world do you do that? Say, come to church with me. That's our primary evangelistic model. Any other questions? I thought we'd get through three chapters today. We got through eight verses. (laughs) It's great.